This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is Classical Ideas with Greg Soden. Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. One of the biggest parts of a high school classroom teacher's job is the never-ending hunt for great resources. I wouldn't even be able to begin to estimate how many YouTube videos and clips I've watched over the years trying to find something that would perk up the interest and attention of American teenagers. Sifting through mountains of terrible material and coming up empty-handed for tomorrow's class is hard, dispiriting work that every teacher knows all too well. But every once in a while, a treasure emerges that becomes a staple of a teacher's classroom library. So imagine this. I'm sitting at my desk in March 2018, creating a lesson plan about the timeline and development of the Nicene Creed. I'm scouring the internet, looking for something interesting. I click on a channel and... Welcome to Religion for Breakfast, a channel dedicated to the academic study of religion. Now, I know what you're thinking. Jackpot. Eureka. Such moments when a thoughtful, attention-grabbing resource makes its glorious entrance, produces in the minds and hearts of teachers indescribable glee, gratefulness, and ecstatic joy. Religion for Breakfast did that for me. I'm embarrassed my discovery didn't happen sooner, but better late than never. My senior students at a normal high school in the middle of Missouri love Religion for Breakfast, and many wound up watching many of the videos and talking to me about them for extra credit opportunities. Religion for Breakfast is hosted by today's guest, Andrew M. Henry. You can go explore Andrew's wide-ranging catalog of videos on his YouTube channel. Some of my personal favorite videos of his are The Siege at Masada, the Origins of Animal Sacrifice, and Teaching About the Bible in Public School, Legal or Not. There are currently 90 episodes of Religion for Breakfast. The conversation today is about Andrew's creative process behind the scenes of producing the show. Andrew M. Henry is a Ph.D. candidate in the Department of Religion at Boston University and founder of the educational YouTube channel Religion for Breakfast. Andrew has produced over 50 video lectures on a variety of religious studies topics used by educators worldwide. You can follow him on Twitter at Andrew Mark Henry. Please enjoy my conversation with Andrew Henry of Religion for Breakfast. Andrew Henry, thank you so much for coming on the show. Great. Thanks for having me. Can you spend a moment introducing yourself, your work, and your incredible project, Religion for Breakfast? 
Sure. So my name is Andrew Henry. I'm a PhD candidate in religious studies at Boston University. Uh, my research actually focuses on the religions of the ancient Mediterranean, so early Christianity, late Roman religion, uh, stuff like that. Um, but I got more interested in world religions education as I went through my PhD program. So I launched Religion for Breakfast, which is an educational YouTube channel that really tries to bridge this gap between the academy and the public. So I saw a huge need for religious studies content on YouTube and thought I would try to fill that gap. Excellent. So I'm curious what took you into the field of religious studies in the first place. Like, what is your religious and your educational background like? You can go back as far as you want if, as well. So I was raised um, American evangelical, and I was very fascinated by church history. You know, I saw, you know, the Bible just kinds of kind of ends at the book of Revelation, or in Paul's story, just kinds of ends at the end of the book of Acts. And I was like, what happens next? So that's how I got into kind of the pseudepigraphal writings of the early church, um, the apocryphal acts of the apostles, all sorts of stuff like that. So for, from a very young age, I was reading uh, patristics, early Christian literature, and that carried me into a bachelor's pro, you know, bachelor's degree in history, focused on Greco-Roman history, a little bit of archaeology. Um, so actually, before religious studies, I thought of myself as an aspiring historian um, you know, cross-training in archaeology, and I applied to mostly ancient history programs um, with the focus on late antiquity, so the late Roman Empire. Um, but as I went through that application process, I got more interested in the the religious aspect of the Roman Empire. Um, I was I could I could care le- couldn't care less about the economics of the ancient Roman Empire, but I cared about the religion. So I started looking at religious studies programs as well, uh, and landed at Boston University and started taking classes in religious studies theory and you know Sufism and ritualization and all these courses that I never would have taken in a standard classics or ancient history program, and just completely fell in love with the discipline. Who have been some of your um guiding teachers at BU as far as like religious studies go? Like, who are you studying with? So my advisor is Dr. David Frankfurter, who focuses on uh, magic and demonology in early Christianity, especially um, the Greco-Egyptian context, so so late Roman Egypt. Um, so he's been my main advisor. I, I also study magic and demonology um, more on the, in Syria, Asia Minor, and the Levant. Um, so a little more north from uh, Greco-Egypt province. Um, but I, I also studied, taken some classes at Harvard Divinity School. So one of my most formative classes was with a professor named Michael Jackson, which is kind of funny. He has a whole article about what I want, like his name being Michael Jackson and the confusion that causes. Um, but he focuses on ritualization and ritual theory. And that that class, the classes I took with Michael Jackson were just transformative in how I think about ritual and, uh, you know, the analogy of religion. So as you were getting ready to jump from being like more of a historian into more of a religious studies scholar, what was that moment where you realized that religious studies was definitely the path for you? Like, do you have a few like important moments? Yeah, it's really when I started taking the religious studies theory classes. You know, my first semester at BU, I was I was taking more traditional ancient history courses. I took a course on the New Testament. I took a course on rabbinical literature and then the Dead Sea Scrolls. So stuff I would have probably taken in, as an ancient history PhD student. But I also had to take classes like sociological approaches to religion. And suddenly I was reading Durkheim and, you know, Turner and Marx and Freud and Weber and all these 
buzzwords of, of theorists in the study of religion. And I was like, wow, like I've never theorized about religion as a category before. And that it just blew my mind. Like I fell in love with this stuff pretty quickly once I started taking the theory courses and haven't ever really looked back. So I'm at the point now where I'm more interested in reading about, you know, exorcisms in Haiti than I am about Roman economics. So like it's become more of a a thematic interest of religion that's cross-cultural as opposed to just a chronological and geographical interest in the ancient Mediterranean. Okay, so I'm I'm already thinking about having you back on the show sometime to talk about demonology as well. So stay tuned for possibly a part two. Great, of course. Um, so I'm I'm guessing that you do some teaching as well. Like, do you have any classes that you're teaching for undergrads? Yeah, so I teach for the writing program at Boston University. Uh, Boston University has a pretty cool um, approach to teaching writing, where they don't just have a standard writing composition course that might bore a you know college freshman. So they hire advanced graduate students to to design writing comp courses in their own discipline. So they might hire a biology PhD student or a philosophy PhD student or a religious studies PhD student, and then charge them to go design their own course that fall, falls in line with their writing comp uh, guidelines. So I designed a course called Magic in the Ancient World, which uh, you know teaches writing, how, good argumentation, good sentence construction, all that good stuff, but also introduces them to the world of magical ritual in the late Roman Empire. We, we focus on uh, magic as cursing, as protection, exorcism, um, all these different uh, strategies to cope with daily life that that the ancient Romans used um, from the fifth century BCE to fifth century CE. So I could kind of take a thousand year span there. Very cool. Okay, so then when did this idea for religion for breakfast really start to percolate in your mind? Like when did this really grab you as a, something that you definitely wanted to pursue? Yeah, in terms of percolating, it was pretty early. I think within the first or second semester of my PhD program, so this would have been 2012, I was already, it, it was kind of like the height of b- biblio blogging. There are Bible bloggers everywhere um, on Patheos, on their own independent blogs. And I was like, hey, I want to do that too. I want to have a blog. So I don't know exactly when I launched the religionforbreakfast.com blog, but it was 2012 or 2013. And I wrote I wrote a lot of articles there, you know, I was just little, you know, 500, 800 word essays on something I was thinking about that day during class. Um, but, you know, as with most blogs, especially early blogs, no one was reading it. You know, I, I probably had like five or six readers per per blog post. And during this time, I was also falling in love with educational YouTube you know, uh, John and Hank Green's Crash Course series was launching, SciShow was launching, Vsauce. It was, again, like a golden age of biblioblogs and a golden age of educational YouTube. And I started realizing, hey, this blog could be a YouTube channel. Like every single one of these articles is a script that I could just say to a camera and would get much more views. You can monetize it. There's just like so much more opportunity to make this, put put this on YouTube. Um, so probably, and that idea sat in my brain for 12 months until I finally sat down and started recording an episode. So it was like a two, two year process. Okay. So since you launched it until today, like what keeps you coming back to doing the show? Cause I'd imagine that this is a tremendous amount of work. So what keeps you coming back to it year after year? I mean, first of all, it's a lot of fun. Like it, it's kind of convenient that my hobby is symbiotically tied to my career like I'm I'm a nerd about religious studies 
I'm I'm obsessed with YouTube, so it's not like it's particularly hard to to dredge up the motivation to do this because it's fun. Like I think about religious studies every single day and and love it. Um, in terms of in terms of more uh, practical motivations, it's instant feedback at this point. You know, writing an 800 word video uh, script. And then putting it out there within a week and immediately within seconds getting people commenting on it. Like it's instant feedback compared to a dissertation chapter where I spend a month on it, send it to my advisor, get it, get it back with Mark, you know, markings all over it and have to rewrite it. And, you know, research and, and writing academic academic research is just really hard. Um, more uh, public facing YouTube videos. I, I like to think that they're, uh, you know, they're academically rigorous. I make sure I do my research, but it's not as laborious to write 800 word essay, uh, make it fun and engaging and then film myself. So the instant feedback does help. I, I completely hear you as well about the instant feedback. Like whenever I started this show, I've been in a PhD program as well. I didn't finish it, but I was in it for two years and I was working really hard on all those papers and essays and conference proposals and all the same thing. But then I launched this show and I'm getting downloads from every continent on earth, basically. And it's just a way different beast of being able to get ideas out there so fast. So tell me a little bit about your statistics. Like how has the show grown since it began? Like what's your growth arc been like? I'd have to look up the actual stats for the long-term arc. I, I generally say, I think I started in 2014 and between 2014 and 2015, it was like 100 subscribers, you know, extremely slow growth. Um, I think I think 2017 is when I passed 1,000. You have um, like 50,000 though, right? I have 56,000 as of this morning, yeah. Um, so I passed 1,000 in 2017. I think I posted a video on like January 2nd, 2017, and was like, hey, congrats, guys, we passed 1,000. What a, what a big year 2016 was for us. <laughs> and, and then like January 3rd or 4th, 2018. So this year I passed 10,000. So, and I, I posted another video like, Hey guys, we just passed 10,000. And now it's been, you know, eight months later and past 56,000. So the most, the most growth growth has happened tw in 2018, just in the past few months. And a lot of that growth was based on my videos on early Christian Gnosticism blowing up. I have a video on gospel of Thomas, one on cult of Mithras, one on a, uh, just Gnosticism in general, and all three the three of those videos just blew up randomly, and it just funneled a bunch of subscribers to my channel. Nice. Okay, so I want to get into like the creation of episodes. What is the day-to-day -day life like with regards to the creation of an episode? Like, how much time do you spend mapping out a project before you began uh, like launching an episode? Um, how do you decide on the order of topics? Anything. So, what's your process like? Yeah, it really depends on project to project. Um, generally speaking, the ideas just kind of strike me like, oh, that would be such an interesting topic. Um, so well, I'm thinking of a, a good example. So, for example, I posted a video recently called uh, Why Strict Religions Succeed. And it digs into the sociology of religions that have, you know, more rules and how those rules help foster a really tight knit community. Um, and that came out of a conversation I was having with a friend. I was just out for drinks and, and he started talking about this recent research on strict religions and economic theory. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, that's amazing. I need to make a video about this. So I jotted it down, read the article, write it, wrote the episode. Like it just was all very fast. Boom, boom, boom. 
Um, I, I also recently posted a vis- video on the history of hell, uh, the concept of hell and Christian doctrine, uh, digging into Second Temple Jewish apocalyptic literature. And that idea was sitting in my brain for two or three years. Like it's just been sitting in my my in like my Dropbox. Uh, like you need to write this episode. And I finally got around to do it. Um, so the ideas, they, they come in different ways. Uh, but I'll when I finally decide to make a video, I'll sit down and research it, you know, look up the university press monographs and the, 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 you know, JSTOR articles, um, start, start writing a script. So all my videos are scripted, which is not uncommon on YouTube. I feel like 90% of the educational YouTubers out there are reading off of a teleprompter. You just can't tell, um, write the episode, which usually takes, you know, two or three hours, maybe more, uh, film myself, which usually takes, you know, an af- not, not even an afternoon of work. Like if it's a shorter video, an hour, by the time I set up the studio lights, set up the camera, make sure it's all working, you know, talk to the camera. That's usually about an hour's work. Um, and then two to three hours editing. So when it's all said and done, I'd say it's like 10 hours per video, sometimes more, sometimes less. Um, it, there's really no rhyme or reason on like how well a video does compared to how much time I put into it. So my video on the, on religion and the legend of Zelda video games, um, is I love that video. It's one of my, the videos I'm most proud about. And it took like 20 or 30 hours to make. It was insane. Mm-hmm. And it's, it only has like 20,000 views. Uh, my video on there might be more atheists than we think is it took me maybe two hours from start to finish to make that video. It was just so simple. I sat down with my iPhone and filmed myself, and it, and it has like sixteen or seventeen thousand views. So, really, no rhyme or reason for effort to to views. So, what kind of uh, gear have you had to buy in order to make this project successful? Uh, so, standard stuff, um, studio lights. You can buy all sorts of studio light kits on Amazon. So, I have these two giant, they're just off screen, but giant um, light boxes essentially that I set up in my bedroom. Uh, I had to buy, you know, good microphones, obviously I have a shotgun mic and now I have more like, uh, standard podcasting mics for more close up shots. Uh, I had to buy good, you know, software. So I have a Adobe creative cloud subscription for premiere and Adobe audition, uh, which are the two programs I use the most. I don't really know how to animate, so I don't really use the other programs. So the, are you, are you a team of one then for this entire project? Yeah, almost entirely. Whenever there's really complicated stuff, I hire my brother. So my brother, Eric Henry, uh, he also has a YouTube channel called EC Henry, where he focuses on uh, science fiction commentary, mostly Star Wars and Star Trek. And he's like the full package. He's an editor, 3D animator, artist, can do hand you know hand drawings. Um, so for like that, that religion and the Legend of Zelda video that I talked about, he basically helped make that entire video because... I was asking for more complicated drawings and animations that I was just not capable of. So every time you see something fancy on screen, it's almost certainly been uh, hired by him. Um, But besides that, I don't think, I mean, some of the other videos I've had help on, the intro to Islam video, and I have an intro to a Sikhism video coming out. uh, Both were uh, co-written and co-hosted by a scholar of Islam, Hussein Rashid, and then a scholar of Sikhism, Dr. Simranjit Singh. So I do try to loop in help when I, when I need it. But I would say 90 to 95% of the channel is me. I know that sometimes you have guests on as well. Like, um, where do you find your guests? How often do you have guests and what's, what's that like? 
Guests are pretty rare. I wish I would have more of them. And they all come from my network, uh, just uh, professional colleagues and friends. Um, I have a video on uh, computer modeling religious communities uh, with a, a, a scholar of religion, more like the scientific study of religion, uh, Dr. Connor Wood, um, who works at the, cult- the Center for Mind and Culture, CMAC, in Boston. So, and he's just, he just, you know, graduated from my program. We, we're we're good friends. So it was kind of an easy ask, like, hey, do you want to appear on this on the channel? Um, Hussein and Simran for the Islam and Sikhism video. I sort of knew from Twitter, but had a, a mutual friend introduce us. Um, but yeah, I kind of have a standing policy that if you're a scholar of religion and you're interested in appearing on the show, you can. It's just a matter of can you make it to Boston or, you know. It's it's it, at that point it just becomes a logistics issue. Awesome. Okay, so one of the biggest critiques uh, of higher education and like the professoriate is that there's like a disconnect between the academy and citizens around the world. You hear about the ivory tower phenomenon all the time, but you have like this super accessible and academic product that's available for anyone in the world for free. And I've used your videos in my own religious studies high school classes as well that I've taught. What has your experience uh, connecting with people around the world been been like so far? Like, who do you hear from? Where are your listeners? Like, what have you? How have people used your videos? Yeah, I think the earliest moment that I knew something was happening was when a professor of church history in South Africa messaged me on Facebook. Uh, just and this was in like 2016. The channel had like 500 or 600 subscribers, and this professor emails me out of the blue and he's like, "Hey, I love these videos. I use use them in my church history class." And I'm like, "Wow." some South African professors using my videos like that was like it kind of blew my mind and that was probably the earliest uh hint that something was happening and then a few months later a, a high school teacher in Texas at a, at a Catholic school was using my videos in her church history class and and so those are kind of the two early moments but now it's almost on a weekly basis uh, I get some message from from a professor or high school teacher using my courses. I don't even, or my class, my videos in their classes. I, I can't even keep track anymore. Um, so bulk of the audience comes from the United States. Um, I have a large audience in the UK, uh, and a large one in Israel too, actually. When I, so I went, I studied abroad in Israel, uh, last semester. And when I announced that on my channel, a bunch of Israelis, like graduate students at a Hebrew university, for example, reached out to me and said, hey, like, let's meet up for coffee. Yeah. And I'm like, wow, I had no idea, like a contingent here in Jerusalem. So, yeah, I'd have to look at the actual statistics to see which countries rank highest. But the U.S. obviously is, obviously is highest. Cool. So what has the response been like from university-based religious studies folks about your project? Like, um, one of the things I talked with uh, Peter Adamson, the host of the History of Philosophy Without Any Gaps, is how is his project uh, received by his fellow philosophy colleagues? So what has your reception been like with the religious studies community and the university level? You know, it's been positive as far as I can tell. If there's some senior scholar that really thinks this is banal and, and secretly hates it, I haven't heard. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've heard nothing but good things, but usually that's from people that are, are already on Twitter. And I think the type of religious studies scholar that's on Twitter is the type of scholar that would like this sort of work. Um, but having said that, I've had nothing but support from my own department. When I first started the channel, I was kind of concerned that it would be viewed as unserious, unserious scholarship. You should be focusing on 
articles, you know, published in peer-reviewed journals. And I'm sure if my advisor could choose one, he would much rather have me focusing on that. Um, But yeah, I've gotten real good feedback from Dr. Stephen Prothero, who does his own religious literacy. You know, he's kind of one of the the big names in religious literacy uh, education, and he's been very supportive of the channel. We've talked shop about it a few times. Um, Other professors, my own advisor, everyone's very supportive. So I think it's a little bit of a fiction that um, that the professoriate just looks down on public scholarship. I think there is kind of a stigma, and I don't think it's going to help me get tenure anywhere. But from my experience, it's been pretty positive. Have you presented on it at any conferences or anything like that? Have you taken it to like uh, any teaching conferences or anything outside of the the normal community? Yeah, I pub- I not published. I gave a paper at the American Academy of Religion Student Association or Graduate Student. It was some sort of graduate student talk two or three years ago, and the top the title was called "Scholars as Content Creators." And I kind of make this, uh, you know, this term "content creator" is this buzzword, especially among YouTubers. Oh, I'm a content creator. <laughs> And I was like, well, scholars are content creators, too. Just our content is usually 20-page articles that five people read. Yeah. Um, so I, I make this this comparison between content creators and scholars and how scholars can think of themselves as content creators, and we can think of our content in different genres than just articles. And I mentioned my YouTube channel in that talk. Um, I've also presented on... Uh, YouTube in general, like YouTube as niche communities, niche religious communities centered around YouTubers, because you have all sorts of uh, religion themed YouTubers that, you know, they might be a Catholic priest or a, uh, you know, ritual specialist of Wicca trying to teach people how to, you know, practice magic. And I, that's more of a scholarly pursuit where I'm thinking of YouTube as a landscape of religious communities. Have um, you ever so, have you ever gone to like National Council for the Social Studies or uh, National Council for, Council for Teachers of English or anything like that at the secondary level? No, I haven't. It's it's really outside of my my wheelhouse. Like I wouldn't have thought of going to a conference like that. You know, I, I am friends with Ben Marcus and have worked with him designing courses for the Religious Freedom Center in Washington D.C. And I know that he goes to conferences like that. So yeah, that might be the next stage is to start looking for more. Um, yeah, stuff that's outside of the, the norm of religious studies, which would be the American Academy of Religion. I have attended YouTube conferences like VidCon and uh, what's another one? Nerd Nerdfighteria, I think it was called, or NerdCon, which the John and Hank Green, uh, you know, orbit has has that they have every year. Nice. Have you, do you use your video series in any of your own classes that you teach at BU? You know, I don't. My my students know I have a YouTube channel. Um, it, it, I think there's an ethical thing here because each each video is monetized and I don't feel right to to funnel them towards the channel, which would then benefit me monetarily, even though it would just be a few cents. You know, like if you had to break down what one view from one student would be, it would probably be a fraction of a penny. Um, but yeah, I, I don't I don't use them in my curricula. Um, but for my writing comp course this semester, for example, we were charged by the writing program to design a assignment that that challenges the students to write in a different genre so not just an academic essay so i had my students write a podcast episode or, or a vi- video essay and the students seemed to really enjoy it i got some really excellent um 
uh, responses to that assignment. So yeah, my experience on YouTube has come into my pedagogy, but I don't specifically use the, the channel in my syllabi. When you hear from high school teachers, um, what are the videos that they're citing? What are the videos that they're using? Like, how did they, did they say anything about how their students uh, received the information? Yeah, it's kind of funny because the teachers like the videos that aren't necessarily the most popular, but what I view as very important videos. And that makes sense. You know, these aren't videos that are going to go viral, but I really want a teacher to show to their students. So, for example, the video, you don't have to be religious to study religion is is a very popular one that i've heard is used um there's a difference between theology and religious studies i know is used um there's one on uh, what is it called um just the the various approaches to religious studies where i talk about a psychological approach a sociological approach historical approach which is kind of dry stuff i try to make it interesting but it's not going to go viral. Right. So those videos, I've received a lot of feedback from from teachers specifically that they've used those. Um, the ones that go viral are the ones that sounds sound con- conspiratorial, like what does the Gospel of Judas really say? And then it gets five hundred thousand <laughs> views, and then they click on it and they realize that it's really good historical analysis of the Gospel of Judas and not some Dan Brown Da Vinci Code stuff. But um, yeah, so it, it is it is a mix. Uh, teachers seem to appreciate the. Um, the the religious studies theory that is translated in such a way for it not to be confusing or boring. Did you ever do any like promotion of the show beyond just like releasing it and telling your friends about it? It was all organic growth and just me pushing it where I can. So from when it was only like a hundred subscribers, I was posting it on, on Facebook, on Twitter. Um, occasionally would post it on Reddit, despite Reddit hating self-promotion uh and yeah so there was no like no one was pushing the channel for me at that stage it was very slow growth um and i i honestly think it started growing because of the search engine the youtube search engine not because of anything else so youtube is the second largest search engine in the world if you type in the word gnosticism one of my videos will probably be the first or second hit so sl- slowly but surely, one of my Gnosticism videos just started floating up on the search engine algorithm. And sometime in 2015, I, th- I remember I was in Greece. I was on an excavation in Greece, and I woke up one morning at like 5 a.m. and looked at my YouTube channel. I was like, oh, my gosh, my Gnosticism video is at 500 views. That's yeah. amazing because like none of my videos ever went more than 50 or 60 views. Um, and then by the end of the week, it was at a thousand views. I was like, Oh my gosh. So that video just like started floating up on, on the search engine. And now I think most of my traffic is driven by the search engine and I'm purposely trying to post videos now that will try to capture that top search engine, uh, spot, not for my own self promotion, but, but for religious literacy reasons. And I, I really think religious literacy educators need to realize this, that it's the second largest search engine. If somebody has a question about Sikhism, if somebody has a question about Hinduism, they're going to go to YouTube and they're going to type in that word and it's going to show some garbagey video from some person that might be hating on the religion. So we need to work to capture that top spot. And I've done that for a few topics, but if you type in Islam, you know, my video is not the top spot. And who knows what sort of Islamophobic video is in that top spot. Yeah. So that's kind of my mission is I wish I should get like a catchy motto, you know, catch the top <laughs> search algorithm spot on YouTube. Isn't that amazing how 
that search bar can lead to some really specific results. Like I had Alan Watts's two eldest daughters on my show to talk about the collected letters of Alan Watts book that they put out. And if you type in Alan Watts on iTunes, my episodes with his two daughters pop right up. And those episodes have gotten thousands of more downloads than my other episodes, all because of that little search engine. Yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's, it's really it's wild. powerful. I mean, I can look at my statistics, like my analytics, and see that it's coming th- that most of my traffic comes through searches. It's it's a real thing, and my channel is tiny compared to some other educational YouTube channels. And even with my tiny channel, I'm getting you know well over two hundred thousand views per month. Uh, so just imagine if my channel was matching the size of Vsauce or scishow like just the impact that would have on religious literacy yeah no kidding you are doing a very very important public service um what are you most surprised by having done this video for the last several years most surprised by um i guess i guess being like a a b-list celebrity is kind of surprising because i find myself i'm not a boring person but i don't it's just interesting to have people that want to talk to me, you know, like I did a live stream on the YouTube channel a a few weeks ago to, to try to gin up support to get to 50,000 subscribers. And people were just like asking about me. They're like, Oh, like, you know, what are you interested in? Or like, you know, there's, there's a few hats on my wall hanging on the the wall behind me. And people saw that and like, Oh, what, what are those hats? I'm just like, this is weird to have people interested in talking to me, the, the content creator. And for the first time ever, a, a stranger recognized me on the street like two weeks ago. So I was walking through Boston and a guy is just like, you're religion for breakfast. Can I take a selfie with you? And I was like, whoa, this is weird. Awesome. So that's probably the, the biggest surprise is just kind of the, wow, people just are interested in me. And they, they seem to know me because they see my face every single day as, as they watch the videos. But when I if I meet them at like a meet and greet at a conference or something, I'm just like, you're all strangers to me, but you know me really well. This is weird. Yeah. Um, okay. So do you have any episodes that you feel that you really nailed it, but have been completely overlooked by audiences? Like, what would you say? Go listen to these because I worked so hard on them and they're so good. and No one's listened to them. The Legend of Zelda video, which I mentioned already, <laughs> <laughs> put 25 hours into that video um, and it needs more views. Um, so I'm scrolling through my videos right now to to jog my memory. Uh, there's one called Ancient Jerusalem Soundscapes. So when I was working at the Albright Institute in Jerusalem, I was looking out over a street a street called Slahadin Street, and the traffic was so bad. It just like traffic would clog the intersection every day around rush hour, and just people laying on their horns. And so I'm like, this would be an interesting video on soundscapes in an ancient city. If, you know, before the internal combustion engine, before the invention of gunpowder, like you wouldn't hear that many loud noises in an ancient city, let alone these car horns, which has just become, you know, a quotidian experience for an urban dweller here in the 21st century. So I did a whole video comparing ancient city soundscapes and modern city soundscapes. And it has like 5000 views. I think it's it's like my most artistic video. And it's really closely tied to my dissertation research. So I wish that one was more popular. What topics have challenged you the most? Like, what was the hardest ones to get through? Let's see. In terms of research, um, let's see. I mean, there's ones that I just don't know the research as well. So I have a video on how religion affects public health, and I don't know enough about 
public health research to talk about it in a very sophisticated way. So I had to like reread articles over and over again, make sure I wasn't saying something stupid or, or lacking nuance. So basically anytime I'm outside of my wheelhouse, and that's why I have so many videos on ancient Christianity and ancient religion, people have started complaining that I have so many Western religions on my channel. And I'm just like, I'm an educator and I'm afraid of disseminating bad information. So like, that's kind of the reason why support me on patreon and maybe i can hire researchers that are experts in these more these different religions so um i i I probably should be more confident in my abilities to write something on zoroastrianism for example but uh at this point i'm i'm nervous and this is kind of like the scholarly impulse that you don't want to you don't want to seem like you're you're talking outside of your your uh league yeah then you know as somebody who covers anything like i'll talk to anybody um but one of the things I'm always talking to my wife about is that I don't know a ton about so many religions. Like I'm just a high school teacher who finds this stuff interesting. And she's like, that's the beauty of your show is that you don't have to know you're asking questions of other people. So maybe you could use that as like a springboard to like do like an interview series, um, sort of like, you know, in the stuff that you're not as comfortable in. Cause surely in Boston, all you got to do is, you know, reach out to some local people and, you know, get on the get in the car and go over to somebody's uh place and have a a conversation that's where podcasting is much easier you can just bring up a couple microphones and a you know audio processor of some sort but to do video interviews is just a pain in the butt you know you have to bring my studio lights that the room is not too echoey it's not like i can find a sound treated studio with nice studio lights very easily yeah um so so yeah, I've actually toyed with the idea of starting a religion for breakfast podcast specifically for the interviews and I could just put the audio file on, on YouTube. Um, but you know, long-term goals, have an actual studio, invite people in, do actual interviews, but this is probably a five-year goal, not a one-year goal. I love it. I see that you get a ton of comments, uh, and on, then on YouTube, you also get thumbs up and thumbs down, like a few hundred sometimes thumbs down. So I've noticed as I was looking through your videos this morning, how do you deal with comments? Do you have like a personal policy with how much time you're willing to spend engaging with people, uh, responding to like negative stuff or pushback or anything like that? Yeah. So when the channel was small, it was very easy to respond to every single comment. And I, and I used to do that just cause it was fun. And it was novel to have people commenting. You know, once it started getting over 100, 200 subscribers, I would get like one or two comments a day, maybe. Um, at this point, it's impossible to keep up with them. Like hundreds of comments, you know, I get like, a, I don't know how many, but hundreds, I can't keep up. And a lot of them are are hateful or or just garbage. That So I've, I've kind of practiced my eye to bounce off comments. Like I'll scroll through and flick my eye onto one for a second see if if I can gather if it's just going to be an attack or just some hate and then try to bounce my eye away. And then I'll scroll through my, um, you know, YouTube has some pretty powerful moderation tools where it flags and catches comments that it, that it suspects are spam or, or hate. And I can go through that and, and see if it accidentally caught a perfectly fine comment and they just happen to use a, an expletive or if it's an actual you know, actual hate speech, then I'll delete the comment or ban the, ban the user. Um, yeah, I don't, I find YouTube comments useless. Like some YouTubers say, Oh, you need to engage your audience. The audience that cares about my channel are the ones that post immediately. So when I post a, when I post a video, I will respond to as many comments as I can for the first few days. 
Uh, but if somebody is commenting on my Gnosticism video from three years ago and it's just some garbage like, oh, you know, you're, you're stupid or I hate you. And I'm just like, delete it immediately. Uh, but in terms of actual civil dialogue, it just can't happen. You know, it's if if you want to have civil dialogue, find me on Twitter, find me on Facebook. Maybe I'm thinking of starting like a, a subreddit for religion for breakfast. But YouTube comments are just not useful for for dialogue. And it, it, I think. I don't think I'm alone in saying that. And a lot of content creators have complained about YouTube not really taking comments seriously um, and trying to make it better, whether it's the Reddit upvote, downvote situation or I don't know. It's just it's a hellscape every morning. I wake up and it's just a bunch of comments and most of them are useless. Some of them are in diamonds in the rough and then those I'll respond to. Um, do you have uh, what? What are your next several episodes that you're working on? Can you kind of preview some upcoming stuff? Yeah, I can preview them because this will probably be launched. Like, I'll probably launch the video before you launch this podcast. Go for it. Yeah, tell me, tell <laughs> so, me your next few because this will come out in probably about uh, a week and a half. Yeah, and this also gets into my process too. So I'm editing a video on Shintoism, the Japanese religion, and the influence of Shintoism on Pokemon. So there's a new Pokemon game coming out this week. Uh, there's a new Pokemon movie just announced, or the, the trailer just came out, uh, Detective Pikachu. And I'm a huge Nintendo fa fan. I'm a huge Pokemon nerd. And I'm kind of a, a Japanese nerd, too. I've practiced kendo and karate throughout my life. Um, so I'm, I did a video on just finding which Pokemon are referencing Japanese uh, kami, you know, Japanese spirits and phantoms. Um and that's coming out this week, probably tomorrow or Thursday. Uh, I'm working on uh, the intro to Sikhism that I mentioned earlier that has not been launched yet because we're kind of doing some some additions to that video. So that's hopefully going to be out probably in December. Um, I'm going to have a Christmas special of some sort. I don't know what yet. I might do like what is Saturnalia since everybody seems to talk about Saturnalia around Christmas. So, yeah, I have like three or four topics that I'm going to try to push out before the end of this year. Awesome. Well, Andrew Henry, um, tell people where they should go to find your work and get in touch. Uh, you can go to youtube.com slash religion for breakfast. Uh, you can support the channel at patreon.com slash religion for breakfast. And you can find me on Twitter at Andrew Mark Henry. Thank you so much, sir. This has been a real pleasure talking to you. Yeah, it was great. Thank you. Classical Ideas is produced by me, Greg Soden. Music on Classical Ideas is composed and performed by Derek Streibig. You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. If you like this show, please rate it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can email me at classicalideas at outlook.com. Or find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash classical ideas podcast. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>